From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. There is a housing summit that is underway. It is taking place in Vancouver and housing certainly has been top of mind being talked about by many of our provincial elected provincial MLAs and the premier. The uh, leader of the opposition, Kevin Falcon, who uh, quite frankly uh, is uh, one of the architects of the housing crisis that we found ourselves in by failing to take the steps that we have taken. I welcome him to be the first person uh, to tour through the housing that we are going to be building for middle-income British Columbians. That was Premier David Eby talking specifically about the housing announcement yesterday, uh, promising to bring affordable housing to middle-income British Columbians. But what about the plan for municipalities and cities throughout the province to jumpstart and to really pick up the pace when it comes to building housing? Well, some mayors are now pushing back and citing several examples of why this is going to be very difficult. Leonard Krogh is the mayor of Nanaimo and joins me on the line now. Mayor Krog, thank you so much for being with us again. Good afternoon. Delighted. I know that we've, we've talked about this before, and certainly the mandate has come from the province that municipalities and cities need to step up. What are some of the concerns, though, and especially concerns that have been raised at this housing summit? I think some of the concerns are obviously around infrastructure and, and the impact it will have on existing community plans like our own. Uh, we spent a lot of time, several years long process, developed our city plan, which is our, our official community plan. We have been working on a nodal concept, you know, seven commercial residential nodes where people will be able to hopefully work and, and walk to work and, and, and live in an area without requirements of transportation and along uh, corridor transportation that are uh, already transit transit oriented. So allowing force dwellings, six dwellings on a single family lot in a residential subdivision in a city that has as much geography as we do and results from an amalgamation of what were rural, if you will, highways approved, Ministry of Highways and Transportation approved subdivisions back in the 70s and 60s does present some problems. On the other hand, candidly, um, I've thought throughout this, uh, my old friend Rich Coleman, who was Minister of Housing in the BC Liberals for a long time, used to complain bitterly that municipalities wouldn't welcome supportive housing, for instance, or uh, subsidized housing into their communities uh, and protested so much. So on the whole aspect of housing, a government had to move. Um, I'm glad this government is moving, but it's not without its criticism. Uh, you can come at this and look at this from from the two different lenses, though, as well. Now, as the mayor of Nanaimo, uh, formerly an MLA, sitting in that position, uh, some have called it kind of heavy-handed as far as what the province is telling local mayors and civic governments to do. What are your thoughts on that? Well, firstly, I'm always conscious of the fact that as a former NDP MLA, I get called upon a lot because it's more interesting and controversial. Having said that, I also slagged the former prime minister who happened to be at the Western Bayshore yesterday, Jean Chrétien. It was his government that basically abandoned the national housing strategy in order to balance the budget, which is what everybody wanted in the early 90s. And to some extent, the consequences of that are playing out today. The Prime Minister of the day gave us banning the banning of corporate union nations, but he also helped us down this road. Uh, numerous governments have tried to catch up on the housing front. 
we are now at what I think everyone describes not inappropriately as a crisis stage, uh, but it's certainly a very challenge. It is a very challenging time. And so the government's got to act. And there were clearly municipalities that weren't doing their share that were, you know, if the, the zoning uh, rezoning hearing was there, they backed down and the neighborhood said, no, we don't want our neighborhood. So these are necessary steps. But there's no question the lack of uh, significant consultation with municipal politicians in general, uh, although there were non-disclosure agreements with often senior staff, I think has produced an unfortunate start to what is a needed response to a housing crisis. Uh, you got a laugh, I understand, uh, during a panel discussion <laughs> yesterday when you uh, you said the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So what were you referring to there? Well, that's right. I mean, the, the whole the whole concept of the approach and doing it quickly. But then I added, uh, I don't think this is the road to hell. I think the province is responding to one of the most basic human needs, which is shelter. But it's going to take a little while to work out some of the kinks. Um, you know, several of the other mayors were were far more critical of this uh, than I was, because like all mayors, we also well appreciate we have all the full range from people who are literally homeless and others who can barely afford to maintain their existing accommodation, others who are desperate to get into the housing market or have jobs to go to or places to work, communities they need to be in, and they can't afford to live there. So the government's got to deal with it. Um, But I I think they're they're going to have to step back, and and I think the government is listening. I might also say Minister Kang was there yesterday in municipal affairs. She is a compassionate, intelligent person, and I note she was taking a lot of notes and paying very close attention to it. And Minister Kalin, who I know from previous experience, is also a guy who can drive an agenda, and he will get things done around housing in BC. So I'm I'm hopeful, but at the same time, I don't believe you should represent your city without uh, criticizing senior government or other local governments, for that matter, when it's appropriate to do so. And when you talk about the other mayors and some of the pushback, and I know the mayor of Burnaby, I believe, talked about the infrastructure. And we've certainly heard this before, that if we're going to build all of this housing, and like you said, it is a basic human need, we clearly need more of it. Where is the money going to come when it comes to to the less sexy part of this, the sewer systems, the infrastructure? How is that going to also be built? Yeah, I, I like your words. I, I'm working at the level of the least sexy level of government. The water, the sewer, the garbage, all the things that are absolutely basic to life but don't get a lot of support. Uh, look, it is going to be incredibly expensive. If you have a, say, a 200-lot old subdivision that's single-family dwellings, and now you can put 800 housing units on there, chances are the water lines, the sewer lines are not up to providing the capacity that's needed to allow those dwellings to be built. And so uh, obviously municipalities, as we always do, will look to senior government, uh, both provincial and federal, uh, because as is pointed out many times, I think we get 10 or 12 percent of the of the tax revenue that governments raise, and yet we're responsible for the majority of the infrastructure costs in this country.
Those things take time as well. Even if the other layers, uh, levels of government come through and fund it, do you think this can be done on the timeline that the province is telling uh, the various mayors, yourself included, all of the civic mayors to get this done? Uh, Look, for some of us, it won't be as hard as others. Nanaimo has already been embarked on ambitious plans and changes in policy direction. You know, uh, our our secondary suite policy has produced 4,000 suites since its inception. So we now have 4,000 suites in in homes in our community uh, that weren't going to be available otherwise if previous councils hadn't acted quickly. Uh, And and I I think we can do it. Uh, and we certainly have the enthusiasm to it, and moreover, we have the incredible need. We're one of the uh, fastest-growing regions in the country. Uh, we grew over 10% in the five years, 2016 to 2021, confirmed by StatsCan. Others are not going to be able to do it. Um, I'm not going to single out anybody today. I'm going to be kind, but I did crack a joke yesterday about one municipality with a joke in the development planning staffs around the provinces, uh, when you phone that municipality, the joke is, uh, when they respond, they say, how did you get this number? <laughs> uh, you know, and everybody knows who we're talking about. And, and I, I, I don't say it to be unkind, but it is a reality. Some communities have resisted the kind of development that is necessary. Um, I'm not a, a fan of growth for growth's sake. I'm not, I understand the limits of the planet and the environment and everything else, but we have to accept that we live in a modern 21st century stable liberal democracy with public education and public health care, relatively good climate, all of those things, we are going to continue to grow. And this province in particular is going to continue to grow. Uh, The reason for the conference was the estimate that we will have a million more people in British Columbia by 2032, eight years away. Vancouver Island has nearly a million people on it already. So do we have to act? Yes. Is it going to be painful? Yes. Is it necessary? Yes. Is there another choice? No. Uh, One other question, and just looking at the conference uh, agenda, uh, it looks as though you will get a chance to put questions to and to speak with Sean Fraser, who's the federal minister of housing. Uh, Do you expect you will get any answers or the mayors, uh, yourself included, uh, will, will be able to at least have this conversation? Well, I won't personally be there. I'm back and I'm already in meeting yesterday. That doesn't matter. But we need a national housing strategy. It's been recognized in every nation of any substance for several decades now. There's a portion of the population that can't afford market housing. um, And we have been underbuilding in this country for many years now. So I am hopeful that the minister will consider it. And as I teasingly say, uh, there's nothing like the prospect of an election to focus a politician's mind wonderfully. And, you know, it appears this federal government may be getting towards the end of its time. And certainly we have a provincial election here in October. So uh, now is the time for people to speak up. And now is the time, in fairness, and I'm being very serious when I say this, like Mayor Alto of Victoria, for whom I have enormous respect, would remind us, and, and Mayor Hurley and others, we're in this together and we have to figure it out because our citizens need it and it's the right thing to do. And I'm, I'm confident that the federal government is going to be even more responsive. And as I say on the joking, cynical side, if nothing else, for the reason that an election will come federally and 
presumably they want to get reelected. All right. Mayor Leonard Krogh, thank you so much for making the time today. A pleasure, and thanks for raising the topic. It's important. All right, that uh, once again was outside Richmond City Council uh, with uh, now two evenings with council hearing people who are opposed and for the idea of moving forward to at least explore setting up a consumption site. Well, council did vote and the vote was to support the exploration of the possibility of a supervised drug consumption site in the city. As you heard in that brief part from outside council, we also had some heated moments inside council. This vote comes after two days of those highly charged hearings. More than 100 people signed up to speak on that motion. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Alexa Liu, a Richmond City Councillor. Councillor, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I understand you voted against this. Why did you vote that way? I voted against this and I was actually considering voting against it when it first came in front of us at general purposes committee meeting because uh, a number of things actually. We had invited Dr. Mina Dawar, who is our public health officer, to come and speak to us back in July asking her to give us more information about the toxic drug supply and how it was affecting people in Richmond and what more we could be doing or services we could be advocating for or hoping for. She told us back then in no uncertain terms that because of our uh, drug use, we're one of the lowest uh, communities in all of BC, our percentages and our numbers. And so uh, we weren't going to qualify to get a safe consumption site in Richmond. So then when it came up again to come and keep talking about it, instead of being more broad and talking about, well, what are the range of options that we could have to work on this file in general? So what can we do for prevention, for recovery, for harm reduction? What can we do in that whole range of things? Um, instead, this was extremely pres- prescriptive, saying that we wanted a safe consumption site in Richmond Hospital. Well, Richmond Hospital is a construction site right now and for the next number of years, so is that an appropriate place to even put it? But because we're asking for something very specific, it puts staff to a whole lot of work to then either justify it or not justify wanting one there, and then we would go forward from there and ask Vancouver Coastal Health to support it and create it. We'd already been told we're not getting it, so it's a lot of work for nothing. It's extremely polarizing for people because... Um, A lot of us have been watching the news, watching what's happening in Yale Town, and thinking that these are the same thing. Supposedly, a safe consumption site is different from an overdose prevention site. But most people don't know the difference between that. And the way the motion was written is it made it sound like it was already a fait accompli that we were going to get this. So not just that staff was going to study it, but that it was essentially going forward, and then the Supporting motions for it were, how are we going to educate the public? How are we going to make this work with, you know, police and other stakeholders? So it seemed very polarizing right from the outset. And then it also didn't really create an avenue for what happens if we don't get it. So in, if we don't get exactly what we're asking for, then it seems that we're also not doing any other work towards uh, solving this in the meantime. 
I, I'm glad that you brought up the difference between a supervised consumption site and an overdose prevention site, because it does seem like those two things are often interchanged when they are, they are different. Uh, there also seems to be a bit of a, a lack of understanding, I, I think, of some of the comments that I heard from people uh, saying we shouldn't be giving out drugs, we shouldn't be doing this, where that isn't actually happening at uh, consumption sites. It's supervised. But d- did you get the sense that there was a, a lack of understanding as to what exactly happened? in these facilities? Absolutely. I didn't know that there was a difference between the two things. And, you know, English is my first language and I've been sitting here on council and I've been looking at this and I've been studying it and I've been reading books and trying to understand more about addiction and treatment. And I didn't know that there was a distinction. So there I was in the first meeting finding out the distinction. And great, it made sense at the time. But if you're going to put forward a motion, you have all the time and all the paper in the world to put all the background information together with it to support your motion. And none of that information was there. So this standalone motion with no more information to it just expected people to just know what they meant by these terms. And so, you know, it was, like I say, it was very polarizing. If you're watching the news and you've seen what's happened in Yaletown, that's what you think that they're suggesting to bring to Richmond. Do you think, though, did kind of get getting lost in this debate was the fact that, yes, the numbers are low, which is a good thing uh, as far as uh, the number of overdoses and the deaths in Richmond, but they are still around. There were, I think, 25 last year. D- did that kind of get lost in the debate over this? Because uh, on, on the one hand, there were people fighting for this. There were people outside of council uh, yelling, just don't do drugs. It's much more complicated than that. Did the idea of of the need for maybe treatment or other options, did that get lost in all of this? Um, Yes. We're wanting to have more services for people with addictions. We want more prevention services. We want more recovery services. We need to build the off-ramp for people if they're ready to go in for treatment to be able to get there. You know, obviously, that being said, when people say, oh, well, you can't give treatment to a dead person, that's also true. But, um, you know, where should we be focusing our time? That's what would have come out of a more broadly worded motion is what what should we doing? What should we be doing first or second or what makes sense in the context of Richmond? It's terrible to think that people have died in Richmond. It's also terrible to think that there's a lot of people that are going to backfill those spaces because we don't have good prevention programs. Um, there's a two-year waiting list for a psychiatrist in Richmond. So if you knowingly go in and you know you need some help, you still may be waiting two years to get the help that you need before you even have developed an addiction or anything else in the meantime. Hmm. Uh, the motion was brought forward by uh, Richmond Councillor Cash Heed. He's also a former Solicitor General. He's a former police chief. Uh, so it sounds like, though, are, are you saying that this motion was brought forward by uh, a fellow councillor, but without really looking at the, the fact that Richmond had already been told, doesn't matter, you're not going to meet the requirements to get a site like this? Uh, correct. And so I, I can't speak to what his uh, motivation was, but certainly it it got him on TV, it got him on the radio, and there we are, and there's your opportunity to speak. Uh, is it actually going to bring solutions forward and move the dial on this file? I don't think so. And that's what I'm disappointed in. It This could have been a better opportunity to bring the community together to say that, yes, we as a community are committed to saving people's lives, supporting people to stay away, stay out of addiction, get through addiction, and recover 
and this this was a missed opportunity. So with the vote, though, going, for, uh, going forward and co- council voting seven to two uh, for uh, the motion in favor of exploring the idea of setting up this site, which would then go to Vancouver Coastal Health and, and higher levels, what happens now then? Does this take uh, city resources? Where does it go from here? Yes, this takes city resources to conduct the feasibility study and then to do um, the other pieces in it that also talk about creating an education program, getting together stakeholders and a number of other things. So it's going to take time and resources to put this information together. Then it may get to Vancouver Coastal Health. Vancouver Coastal Health turns it away and says, no, we're not interested in doing this right at this time. Okay. Hopefully staff can also come up with some ideas in the meantime, but that's not what it asks for. So it doesn't actually create a mechanism for staff to come back to us and say, well, here's the range of solutions that we should be looking at. Here are the different costs. Here are the different implications of these different opportunities. That might have been a a bigger job, but it would have been more effective and actually brought us to something in the short term. So staff would have been able to come up with some short-term wins um, and some other things that we could do in conjunction with Vancouver Coastal Health. What I will admit and say that this does do is it does start the conversation with Vancouver Coastal Health that there is a will on council to do something. And so Vancouver Coastal Health can then move forward with more confidence and bring forward some more ideas to us. One of the comments that was made outside of council, and I believe it was made by a conservative candidate who was speaking, and he made a comment about SkyTrain and that if this site was to go ahead, SkyTrain would then become this kind of pipeline of people who use drugs coming to Richmond to use this site and and referencing again that it could potentially become one of those sites where you see drug paraphernalia littered outside, you see increased drug use outside the site. Again, I think referencing or talking about a site similar to the one that we saw in Yaletown, which again, isn't what this is proposing. But uh, is that fear mongering or was there a legitimate concern that by setting up this site, it would draw people into the city of Richmond to go there to do their drugs? Whenever there are good um, supports and facilities. So if you're handing out extra sandwiches, if you're handing out blankets, clothes, whatever, if you're treating people well, people will come to be treated well. So if we create this, maybe it won't attract the drug users from other places, but it'll certainly create a hub of space for where the drug dealers go to deliver the drugs to the people that need them. So if, um, you know, create their one-stop shopping, if you will. And then how do you pay your drug dealer? Well, I guess the open-air pawn shop opens up there too. Is that perhaps what happens? So, um, because you're supposed to bring your own drugs to the site, which sounds great that you're supposed to procure them yourself, but, you know, drug dealers are, they're business people too. They understand how to go and be where the action is, right? So whether it'll bring in more users, it'll definitely bring in more element surrounding that whole industry. And then, the, you know, we've already seen with the Canada line coming in that there is more theft, especially with our big retailers. We've seen a ton more theft with our big retailers. And that's the other conversation that has to happen is the loss prevention um, departments from these big retailers. They've essentially become part of our de facto uh, policing system, dealing with people coming in and, and stealing and shoplifting. 
Yeah, which uh, unfortunately is is happening in many, many areas. Uh, so, Councillor, is it your hope then that even though th- this is going to go ahead, it is going to, to staff will now be working on this, but because you voted against it, is it your hope that, that what you've already been told, that you will not get the approval from Vancouver Coastal Health, it won't get the, exem- the exemption from Health Canada, and it, and it won't actually go ahead? My hope is that if this is appropriate in this area, that we go through a proper consultation process, a proper information, a proper education process, and we put in um, supports and guardrails to make sure that if it does come in, that we don't end up with a mountain of unintended consequences that we didn't want. Um, I think what we need to make sure we have first is that we do have the detox and and the rehabilitation spaces so that if we do open this up and someone comes in and they do the drugs and they say, okay, actually I'm ready to get get out of this, that we have somewhere to put them instead of just churning them back out on the street and waiting until the spot magically opens up months later. Councillor Alexa Liu, I appreciate you taking the time today and chatting with us. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, now to a developing story, and this has been happening today. There might be a shortage if perhaps you were trying to get an Uber or Lyft earlier today. You might have had difficulties because many Uber and Lyft drivers have been on a strike on this Valentine's Day, drawing attention to pay to benefits and to some other issues they say they have with the companies in charge. Well, Guramar Sidhu is somebody who has been driving for Uber three, uh, for, for about three years now, full-time. Also one of the members of the group that organized a protest locally. Guramar, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks a lot for having me here. Well, I understand that you were at the airport. You have been at the airport as part of this protest. What was it like? Uh, I would call it as a very successful protest and thanks a lot to all the media coverage that we got. We are trying to reach out to the government as well as to the Uber that we need a better and a more human kind of uh, workplace uh, ethical situations in Uber driving. And what specifically are the issues that you face or that you uh, are dealing with as an Uber driver? I would like to start with the wages. Uh, it has been already about four years since the uh, Uber came out to the lower mainland to BC as well. We are working at the same wages since four years. We are working 33 cents a minute and 70 cents a kilometer since 2020. It hasn't been increased. All other spheres of the world, let it be the transit, let it be the port workers, every Every other single sphere has increased the wages. The prices have gone up. For us, it's still the same, but the expenses have gone almost about, I would say, 30 to 50%. See, with the newer vehicles, we would have to pay more towards the payments due to the increased rate of interest as well as the expenses. So the expenses have gone up and our earnings have came down. That would be the first thing. Secondly, uh, Lots of divers are facing deactivations on any kind of uh, false complaint or sometimes even without a false complaint, the driver's ID is being deactivated. And in that, driver's side is never heard. They are just told 
that your ID has been deactivated, you couldn't work for Uber or for Lyft back again. That's a big, big thing. And the third is uh, we need a fair transparency because we don't know how much Uber is deducting from the customers. And they are paying us a different amount. They're deducting a different amount from the customers. It's a big, big exploitation going out for the Canadians right now. So what a customer, what a rider will pay on the app, that number can be different or that number could be more than what you see? It's always more. I have a very good example. I did a ride last year from White Rock to the Vancouver airport. They deducted $53 from the customer and they declared that they have charged customer $44. $9 altogether just out there and then out of those $44 I still would have to give the airport fee the booking fees as well as the service fee of 25% that Uber charges for on every ride uh, when you go back to to when you started doing this and again you've you've been doing this full time for about 3 years what was it that drew you to this job why did you want to do it so the main thing what Uber is selling today, it was selling back then as well, was the flexibility. They always said that you will be very flexible, you're your own boss, but all those things they just speak about, we don't get any benefit of flexibility. If I want to give you an example of flexibility, we guys are working for 15 hours every day, and if 15 hours is flexibility, then what kind of a job we are doing? That's a big, big, big question. So do you have to work 15 hours a day? Because I, I thought that too, that one of the selling points is you work when you want to work. But the thing is, how are you going to make uh, the things meet? You're not even able to make the ends meet if you're uh, driving lesser than that. We don't get that much paid. The main issue is coming up back again. They say 25%, but Uber is deducting around 50 to 60 percent from every ride. Hmm. And and so why have you stayed doing this? If if the money isn't good, the flexibility isn't there, it doesn't sound like it was really the job that you wanted to sign up for. And I'm guessing that's that's the same or that's similar to how a lot of the other drivers today taking part in the protest feel. Why do you stay doing it? So. Let's say, how many jobs will you change in Canada or, or wherever you live? Every other single job is having the same issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I, I'm an engineer from the background, but it's so hard to be in your own field that you need to find out some alternatives. I used to drive the truck, and in trucking, I wasn't able to get hold of my family pretty much. So I decided to go down to the Uber, but day by day, the things are deteriorating. I leave my home around 5 in the morning, come back at 9. It's still the same, but you don't have any options. And I know the the BC government has uh, looked into this and they've made proposals as far as dealing with uh, WorkSafe, coverage for WorkSafe if if Uber or Lyft drivers are injured, uh, bumping it up to at least minimum wage when working. Has the government done anything or, or will those changes, do you think, make much of a difference? Uh, I would say that the WorkSafe thing is a very welcoming step by the government. But let's say we are going to going down to the 120% of the minimum wage. They are just boosting about it. 120% is about the engaged time. So let's say I'll try to explain you. 
one is an online time and one is an active time online time is the time when you are online onto the app active time is the engaged time it's the time when you are giving a ride to someone so let's say if you are 15 or 14 hours a day your online or the engaged time is around 7 to 8 hours if it's a very busy day that time could be around 9 to 10 hours on a normal average day it's around 7 to 8 hours so that 120% of the minimum wage is for that active or the engaged time when you are just giving the rides but for the extra 6 or 7 hours we are not going down to a gym i'm not going to a movie with my family or i'm not relaxing on my couch i'm waiting in my vehicle waiting for another job to come do you still make enough do you make a, a good enough living as far as by working those long hours and doing that so are are you making what you wanted to make we are just ma- uh, making the ends meet mm. some days even lesser than that like, i'm i'm using my line of credit if i'm to be honest and But i'm not able to not able to make it but the thing is i want to fight for it and today's strike it's not just from british columbia it's a global strike all over in the world the 14th feb has been all the uber drivers are doing a strike and i want to give a message to the consumers to the customers as well we need your support please if you can support us in our cause it's not just for the drivers uber is being like described as a driver thing but the first trip up is done for the, by the for the customers as i told you 53 dollars came out of a customer's pocket i get 44 dollars declared where are those 9 dollars going it's going out from the customer's pay it's going out of the canadian economy and so you would like the support of customers of the public and i know like you said this was a one day strike that many many different cities around the world drivers in those cities took part in it what will you do next we're trying to wait for the british columbia government and the government and the labor minister harry bands let's see if we can be of more help for us we are also trying to arrange some meetings with the passengers transport board so that we can get some uh, cap on hours not cap on drivers i would again repeat cap on hours not on drivers we want every other guy to work the way we are working and uh, the cap on hours if i can elaborate more if you want what do i mean by that i'm um, sure we we only have a couple minutes but sure what do you mean by the the capping of the hours uh, so all over uh, any transportation companies you can't work more than 14 hours a day and 13 hours not more than 13 hours of the driving time but an uber you your active time should be 13 hours and to get the an active time of 13 hours you are online for about 17 to 18 hours like we are still a person is exhausted for 18 hours even if he is getting work for 9 or 10 hours so if they can get a cap on hours it should be capped on 13 hours online time not the active time the app shouldn't work more than 13 hours of online time all right well we are going to continue uh, watching to see what happens with this but guramar thank you so much for taking some time away from uh, the protest uh, for joining the show today appreciate it thanks a lot for having me in and thanks a lot for your support every time
Well, you probably don't often think about dining choices when we're talking about hospital food, but a new program, and it is part of Fraser Health, is looking specifically at that. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Caitlin Wilkie, Director of Food Operations with Fraser Health. Caitlin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. What exactly does Choice Dining do as far as uh, offering up different foods? Yeah, so Choice Dining is a program where we're offering patients choice, the opportunity to select their meals for the next day's lunch and dinner. Um, It consists of two components. So one component is an app that they can download on their own personal device if they choose to, to make their meal selections for the next day. The other component, if they don't have a personal device or choose not to use it, is we have menu assistants who are food service workers who go around um, to the bedside with an, uh, with an iPad, actually, and take the patient's meal selections for the next day. And is the idea then that patients uh, have more control and, and they'll be able to, to have more foods that they actually like rather than just maybe getting that tray delivered? Yes, exactly. So our current system, we do take patient food preferences. Um, so at the places where we don't have choice dining available yet. Um, so you could say, I don't like fish, for example, but it's it's quite limited. If you say you don't like fish, you're not going to get any fish. You're not able to say, well, I actually like salmon or I actually like cod nuggets. So choice dining allows you to see what are the choices and choose um, what it is that you would like to eat. And of course, our goal is to have patients consume more food, um, which should aid in their recovery. Uh, because is it, I would imagine there's a lot of waste or a lot of food gets thrown away. There is. Um, so certainly the, the waste that we're talking about here is waste that comes back uneaten on, on patients' trays. Um, and, and there is. People aren't feeling well. Um, people eat differently when they're sick. And so you can imagine if this tray of, of food shows up, that's maybe not something that you prefer, or maybe it is something you normally would prefer, but you don't feel like eating today that, that today because you're not feeling well. Um, it definitely does contribute to some waste um, that comes back for sure. Uh, and what about the cost of it? It seems like this might be a bit more expensive, but does that kind of uh, get uh, ironed out with, with reducing the waste and that kind of thing? I mean, it's it's early in our pilot project to be able to kind of to look at those kind of numbers um, for sure. Um, so, but, we're, but in terms of some of the tools we're using, our tools that we that we need in place anyway. So, for example, the app. Um, it is an addition to our current software, but it's software that sophisticated software that we need in place anyway to accommodate uh, therapeutic diets, allergies, and make sure that we're feeding patients safely. So, a lot of the um, tools, I guess, are kind of existing or maybe small add-ons to what we were doing. Um, but I think. The, the outcomes and, and the improved patient experience is well worth it. A lot of people in hospital have dietary uh, issues or have to be on certain diets. D- does this work with patients in that scenario or is it more for patients maybe that don't have those limitations? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So it does work because of the sophisticated software that we use. So if a patient is on um, a therapeutic diet or a texture modified diet or has allergies, the um, app and the computer software actually knows what they're not allowed to have, and it won't show you something to select that you're not allowed to have. Um, so, but of course, those diets do tend to have a little less choice. Um, so certain diets that are very very restrictive, we've found. Um, maybe aren't compatible with the program, but but some of the other some of the other diets that are restrictive, but not as much so, 
um, do work still quite well. Um, again, with the software making it making it safe um, and making it clear to patients um, what you know what are uh, safe, appropriate options for them to choose from. Uh, so this has been launched as a pilot project at Royal Columbian and Surrey Memorial. How has the feedback from patients been so far? Yeah, the feedback from patients has been, um, and I, I really mostly have anecdotal feedback at this point, has been good. Um, patients are always happy to see the menu assistance. I think it's um, definitely a, a welcome addition to their healthcare team when they see that person to come into their room and take their meal selections. And certainly if they were gone for a test and they missed their menu assistant, it's certainly someone that they miss seeing. So anecdotal feedback at this um, at this point in time is, is quite positive. Um, it's difficult to get... Um, written feedback. We do collect patient satisfaction surveys, but we can't, due to confidentiality, we can't narrow it down to the unit. So we'll have to wait until it's more site-wide where we can then actually compare sites that have choice dining to those that don't, although the future plan is to to roll it out to those who don't. Um, so, But once we do that, we'll be able to have maybe some more concrete data, but certainly good preliminary anecdotal feedback for sure. Well, it sounds uh, like a a very cool project, and I'm sure uh, uh, many people happy to have those options. Uh, Caitlin, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the B.C. government is asking people for their feedback, asking how the province can put the brakes on catalytic converter thefts from vehicles. And in uh, some newly released information earlier today, the government says this includes metal dealers and recyclers, partners from the automotive industry and law enforcement agencies, as well as interested members of the public. And uh, going on to talk about Catalytic converters, which are emission control devices, they reduce pollutants in motor vehicle exhaust, but they are also targeted by thieves because they contain valuable elements such as platinum, palladium and other materials that can be removed in minutes. So will this actually make a difference or what could be done to make a difference when it comes to catalytic converter theft? Joining me now is Dove Demand, co-owner of Capital Salvage in Vancouver. Dove, great to speak with you again. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, I know we've talked in the past about this and uh, catalytic converter theft. Do you think there is a way or, or how could we reduce the number of thefts? Well, uh, I'm sure there's a way. I think it's a good idea to kind of get the public's feedback. Uh, however, you know, generally most of the ideas are uh, revolving around uh, reporting, uh, you know, a centralized reporting system and such. Um, I just know from from all my other scrap metal purchases that you can do all the reporting you want, but if there's nobody actually checking the reports and going through the reports, it's pretty much a waste of time. Um, in about 10, 15 years, we've been using this reporting system I've had maybe a, once or twice a visit from the VPD inquiring to uh, some metal that I purchased. Um, the other problem is if police officers are able to make an arrest, there's not much that happens after the arrest. Um, if they're taken to jail, they're pretty much out the next day, if not the same day. And uh, some of these career career thieves Career criminals are just, you know, racking up uh, books of, of 
of charges and um, discipline and whatnot, and just there's nothing there's nothing preventing it really. Uh, I think the best bet would be, you know, kind of the manufacturers somehow developing a way of making it more difficult to remove. Um, but other than that, um, unless the courts and the cops get a little bit tougher, uh, I don't see any improvements happening. I want to go back to, to something you said about the reporting and the reporting system. So how does that work? If somebody comes into to your establishment and is selling you a catalytic converter, converter, how does that work? So uh, catalytic converter, like any other of our metal purchases, um, the customer has to provide a current um, BCID or current driver's license. Um all of the information is recorded, their, their address, their name, date of birth, the ID number. And, um, for example, let's say, you know, Joe Smith comes in with five catalytic converters. We don't report it as Joe Smith. Joe Smith is given a customer code. So it would be, let's say, one, two, three, ABC brought in five catalytic converters. Then it's in the police's hands. They can go into the system. If they have a report that somebody stole five catalytic converters, they can scroll through purchases of the various scrapyards. And then if they see something that matches, a Capital Salvage bought five catalytic converters from uh, ABC123, then they get a search, uh, not a search warrant, but they get a warrant for us to provide the person's personal information. At that point, we're able to share their name, their address, and all of that stuff. Hmm. But um, isn't so that, it is quite a process. Right. Isn't that, would that not be suspect, though, if somebody walks in and sells you five catalytic converters? I mean, what are the, is there ever a legitimate example or, or, or a situation where somebody is getting rid of five vehicles or junking five vehicles and is selling those? I mean, is there ever a scenario like that where they're not stolen? Um, yes, for sure. I mean, uh, body shops, mechanics. Um, they, they could be doing work and, and kind of stockpiling a few and then coming to sell them all at once rather than bringing, uh, you know, a catalytic converter one at a time as, as it's been serviced. Hmm. So, um, you know, anyone that works on vehicles has a legit reason to have cats. Um, you know, it's not often that someone's coming in with multiple cats like that. It's usually m- maybe two or three at most. Um, but, uh, I mean, we can only do so much other than me accusing someone of being a thief. I just have to follow the government policy and, you know, use my gut instinct a little bit, but, um, you know, I have to be, I have to be careful. Sure. Sure. So so why is it too, when it goes into the system, why is it for privacy that there's a customer code rather than the name? Because wouldn't that also be a flag if the same name was popping up over and over again? Yeah, well, the the customer retains his customer code. So each transaction won't have a different code. Mm, Once the customer is in, his code will, him or her, the code will stay the same. Um. I believe it's privacy issues similar to, you know, a medical information that you can't just quite share it with anyone that asks. There, there's a process to it. 
Um, and and this is, that's what I was informed, and that's, that's how we operate. Right. And could there be other things done? Like you said, making it more difficult to steal would be a positive step. I know the province is also looking at part of their online survey, asking for input from, again, industry, interested parties and such, is uh, adding an etching process to carve the identification numbers into the catalytic converters. Would that make a difference, do you think? Um, that could maybe be part of a difference, you know, uh, etching would be fine, but there would probably have to be some sort of a program where, uh, the scrapyards can quickly check those, that serial number into some kind of a database. Other than that, it's just another piece of information that we would put into our police reports, which generally never gets looked at. So it sounds like that's a bit of a breakdown in the system as well, in that you're reporting that information is there that would yeah. potentially look suspicious to law enforcement. But like you said, if law enforcement isn't checking or isn't paying attention, then where's the deterrent for people to stop doing this? Exactly. There is none. And like, in a, you know, in the occasion where someone is arrested or caught in the act, like I said, there's not much that's done to them. Um, you know, the cops are very overloaded, the courts are overloaded, and um, it just seems like nothing much kind of happens for petty theft or, you know, theft under a certain amount. Um, they're just out the next day or the same day doing the same thing. Um, I preach all the time that these are just Band-Aid, Band-Aid solutions, um, it's, you know, more of a, a mental health, uh, drug addiction uh, type of a problem. Mm-hmm. As long as you have desperate people out there looking for money, uh, they will they will do whatever it takes to get it. So if it's not this, unfortunately, it'll probably be something else. But I think it's a, it's a bigger social issue, in my opinion. Right. And, and roughly speaking, how much can someone make if they sell, uh, if they walk in with a, an old catalytic converter to sell it? Well, some cats are are close to worthless, you know, maybe $2.50, $5 a piece. But, you know, you can get up to $60, $70, you know, as high as $150. Um, it, it all depends on the make and the model, uh, if it's uh, aftermarket or not. Um so there's, there's many different factors. It's quite a big range. Right. Is there anything people can do to better protect themselves, to, to make it more difficult for thieves to get them? Well, I mean, anyone that is able to park in a garage or some kind of, uh, you know, guarded parking area, I mean, well, you know, that's, that's a good way, but not everybody has that ability. Um, there might be some kind of an aftermarket thing around where, you know, you can install it yourself to kind of make it a more difficult process. Um, part of the problem is it's, it, it's such a quick, it's such a quick uh, theft that happens so quickly. So anything that you can kind of do to, you know, deter or just make it a little bit more difficult, uh, I think would help. All right. Well, that is uh, good advice and uh, very interesting uh, looking at it from, from your point of view, from from how you are seeing it as someone in the industry. Uh, Dove, we'll leave it there for today, but great to talk with you again. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. 
Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.